Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda and my good friend Danny Abdeljabar. Danny, what's up, my friend? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. And before we get started, uh, just quick housekeeping. So everyone who has not filled out the survey, please fill out the survey. That is the number one <laughs> way to support our show right now. It's the Survey Monkey survey. The link is in the show notes. It takes you a couple of minutes. And you have the chance of winning $500 in Amazon money. So please do that. It really does help the show tremendously. And we're going to keep on annoying you until you all do it. But um, <laughs> today, today, we have, today we have a special guest. And, and I want to introduce uh, Aura Sanjian. Uh, Aura, am I, am I pronouncing your name correctly? I just want to make Ara. sure before. Yeah. Aura. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Aura. Uh, Aro is from the University of Michigan at Dearborn, and he is an associate professor of history and then the, the, the director of the Armenian Research Center. Aura, how are you today? Fine, thank you. Wonderful. It's and good to be on your I, show. Yeah, we, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and, and bearing through all the technical hoops that it takes to join us on a call <laughs> for, for an hour. So we, we appreciate that. But... um. Yeah, we're we're really excited to speak to you about this subject. Um, you know, we're we're going to be focusing on the Armenian genocide, and um, you know, and really, we're going to see where this goes. But I guess to start this off, um, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself to um, our audience and, and maybe highlighting, you know, what your field of study is and and, and what type of research you do. Well, uh, I'm Armenian myself. You know, my grandparents' generation were victims of the Armenian genocide, in a sense. They were refugees. Uh, my family ultimately ended up in Lebanon, where I grew up, and I came to the U.S. to teach at the University of Michigan-Dearborn 17 years ago. Uh, I'm a historian. Uh, my education was first in Armenia, when it was still part of the Soviet Union. I got my MA degree over there. And then I continued with my PhD at the University of London, uh, went back to Lebanon, and I taught there for 10 years at the college level, and I'm here, and this is my 17th year in Dearborn. So that's my background. My uh, re published research is mostly about the post-World War I period, uh, but of course, when I also write about the Armenians, whether in Armenia or the Armenian communities in the Middle Eastern countries, where many Armenians ended up after the genocide, uh, the genocide team comes very important because it's a very defining moment in modern Armenian history, which really changed the patterns of Armenian history drastically. 
So that's where I, I usually am. So my interest is how Armenian handled with the legacy of the genocide is much more my focus. But of course, I also continue to follow the research that is done on studying the genocide itself and the way it happened during the First World War. Awesome. Well, you know, I, I think jumping into this subject, uh, Ara, is, you know, a, a daunting one, <laughs> especially, you know, in a, in a short format, like uh, just a conversation with us here on Bro History. I was wondering, maybe we can set the scene a little bit and provide a little bit of historical context around what were the conditions by which, you know, we led up to the actual event of the Armenian genocide. Can you tell us a little bit about the history that goes behind uh, that event? Very briefly, uh, the Armenians have been mentioned in history uh, at least from the 5th, 6th uh, century BCE. Uh, and technically, uh, at the beginning of World War I, Armenians were living on the two sides of the Russian-Ottoman or Russian-Turkish border. Mm-hmm. The Russians had come and occupied what Armenians considered to be the historical part of their homeland in the 19th century. But the Ottomans had actually conquered the western part of the same Armenian homeland sometime in the late 15th century, uh, in in that sense. Uh, But of course, Armenians initially, prior to the rise of nationalism, had identified themselves as a religious community. They became Christians very early on in the 4th century. Uh, They take pride in that Armenia was the first country in the world to declare Christianity as a state religion. And in that sense, of course, they had their own national Armenian church, which evolved gradually by distancing itself from the universal church, uh, starting from the 5th century onwards. Uh, It's a church which elects its own leader. Uh, It is called the Catholicos, so it's called the Autocephalous Church in that sense. And uh, that uh, individualism of the church was uh, respected by all Muslim conquerors, uh, starting with the Arabs up to the Ottomans and the Persian Savids and the Ghajars, uh, because they, they saw that Armenian Christianity was slightly different from the Christianity of the Byzantine Empire. So as such, they continued in the Ottoman Empire to be considered as a separate millet, separate from the other Christians, the Greeks. In the 19th century, Armenians were also affected by the new ideology of nationalism. Mm. And they started redefining their identity in the nationalistic terms of the 19th century. Uh, For example, the works of Gottfried von Herder were very popular among Armenian intellectuals. And as Christians, with the other Christian nations of the Middle East or other peoples of the Middle East, they were readier to learn the new things that were coming out of Europe. And essentially, if we uh, equate uh, Europeanization with modernization, uh, Armenian modernization came to to true roots. One in Eastern Armenia was through Russia and then Germany, when the German influence by Russian influence was quite important. But while the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire mostly looked towards France, as some kind of a model. And if you look at, for example, the way Armenian language evolved, etc., that's that's very clear in a way that they learned to look at things from the way the Germans or the French started looking at them. So, uh, So when the Ottoman Empire started disintegrating, 
Armenians were encouraged, of course, by what was happening in the Balkans, where a number of Christian nations were setting up their own independent states, and that process started, of course, with Greece in the early 19th century and continued with, you know, Serbia and Romania and Bulgaria in the late eight, uh, 19th and early 20th century. But Armenians were on the other side of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, among their neighbors, only the Georgians were Christian, while all the other neighbors were Muslim. We're talking here about Persians, we're talking about uh, the Turks, we're talking, about the, we're talking about the Kurds, and also the ancestors of the modern-day Azerbaijanis, etc. And in the Ottoman Empire, of course, they started having the same kind of aspirations. But they had some problems. One is they were far away from European imperialistic ambitions. The only imperialistic country which was interested in Armenian territory was basically Russia. And um, that was one case. Uh, and in, an, in another way, they also had numerical problems, that the number of non-Armenians during Armenian historical territory was much higher than, let's say, the non-Bulgarians or the non-Greeks living in those parts of the Balkans. So Armenians essentially were unhappy that they were being treated as second-class citizens. The Ottoman Empire was modernizing. A number of reforms were carried out in the Ottoman Empire in a period that we call the Tanzimat period, which starts in 1839 and goes on until 1876. And actually, some Armenians who lived in the capital, in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, were very much uh, in, in league with this. And some of them even participated, not only in the discussions, but also in the writing of the, Armenian, of, sorry, of the Ottoman Constitution of 1876. However, things got worse after the war of 1877-1878 large number of Christian populated areas in the Balkans were detached from the Ottoman Empire, and the new ruler Abdul Hamid basically dropped this idea of Ottomanism and opted for a more Islamic kind of Ottoman Empire. And here, Armenians who had been given promises of reforms by the European powers at the end of the war felt unhappy that those reforms were not being carried out. So technically, at no time uh, in the, until the First World War, Armenians asked for immediate independence in the Ottoman Empire. They vacillated, vacillated between two options. One, uh, empire-wide reforms, which will bring in some kind of Ottomanism, equality, some kind of civic nationalism, or mm. they wanted some kind of an, uh, regional autonomy, which other regions in the Ottoman Empire had, like Crete, which eventually, of course, joined Greece, uh, and also Mount Lebanon, where also there was a Christian uh, concentration. And in 1861, they were given a kind of autonomy within the Ottoman Empire. But uh, the, uh, among the Ottoman governments, there was reluctance to give this, understandably, because they usually saw that every region which became autonomous sooner or later detached itself from the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. So that's why... When World War I began, I think for the ruling Young Turk Party, this was a good opportunity to get rid of the Armenian issue by getting rid of the Armenians. And essentially they carried out something which we now call the Armenian Genocide. So basically this was the background of why it started. 
Otto, thank you for that. Uh, that that's uh, fascinating that that raises more questions uh, at this point than uh, answers, I think. One thing that jumps out at me, I, I wonder, what about the land that the Armenians inhabited uh, was geopolitically advantageous to the Ottomans such that they would wish to um, you know, not uh, grant it the same type of autonomy that uh, other uh, uh, states had. Like if Serbia uh, or other country, like countries exactly. in the Balkans. I think the Ottomans never gave autonomy willingly. They mm-hmm. gave autonomy under pressure from European powers. Mm-hmm. And the, the closest that the Ottomans came was actually a few months before the outbreak of the war. In the beginning of 1914, after two-year-long negotiations, which occurred at the end of the Balkan Wars, uh, under Russian pre- pressure, but also some German and British involvement, some an agreement was reached between the Ottoman government and the Russian government to actually introduce some kind of self-rule, not full autonomy, in what was called the Western Armenia or the Armenian-populated regions. They were going Mm -hmm. to be divided into two inspectorates. There will be two inspectors invited from neutral European countries. And actually, inspectors were invited, one from Norway and the other one from Netherlands. You see, European countries, which did not have really imperial ambitions, so the Ottomans did not have that kind of a negative, suspicious look towards them. And actually, one of them was in place when World War I began. And there were a series of rules about, you know, mixed police force, courts, and other kind of things. But one of the reasons the Ottoman Empire entered the war, and they entered it willingly, they were the first to fire the shots at the Russians. They were, there was no Pearl Harbor which dragged the Ottoman Empire into the war. Actually, they thought that if they would remain neutral, uh, the winning coalition will dictate terms on the neutral and relatively weak Ottoman Empire after the end of the war. So, they were right about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so basically, there was some discussion among them. Some of their leaders wanted alliance with France, Britain, Russia but they were cold-shouldered by them. Others were Mm -hmm. enthusiastic with Germany from the start, and when the others' appeals were not met, they gained the upper hand, and uh, eventually, the the next day after the outbreak of the war, August the 2nd, they signed a secret agreement with Germany, where Germany, of course, uh, promised to help them fulfill their aspirations. Uh, Their aspirations were mainly to recover some of the territories that they had lost in the previous decades, and also in some sense to move eastwards towards those parts of the Russian Empire, starting from what is now Azerbaijan, and then crossing into what is now Central Asian republics, uh, because they thought that because these nations were speaking Turkic languages, because many of the Turks considered themselves to be originating from Central Asia. So there will be some kind of Turkic unity. In the same way, let's say, like the Russians were trying to be play the role of the big brother in some kind of Slavic unity, etc. Yes. And some of the young Turk leaders, not all of them, had these aspirations. And for them, Armenians would be something like a barrier to make it uh, easier for them to join links with the 
Turkic-speaking people in what is now the South Caucasus and then across the Caspian Sea to Central Asia. But for the majority, empire saving, empire maintenance was much more important than this kind of ideology. Mm. Gradually, the young Turk leadership, that, that was the name of the party that was ruling uh, Ottoman Empire after 1908, they were becoming more and more nationalistic compared to the predecessor, King uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid, was more Islamist in his approach. And so they also wanted to bring in some kind of a Turkish nationalism. And uh, one important factor was also to create a Turkish bourgeoisie. And since uh, the Christians, not only Armenians, but Greeks, uh, played an important role in commerce in the Ottoman Empire. That has traditionally been their role. So essentially also to weaken that group and to concentrate economic power as hell in the hands of ethnic Turks was also part of the aspirations of the Ottoman government during World War One, as they embarked on actually deporting and, 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 and en route massacring many of the Armenians who lived all across the Ottoman Empire, actually. So even Armenians who lived in the western part of the Ottoman Empire, close to the Bulgarian border, they also were actually ejected from their own homes, although Armenian political aspirations never extended to those parts of the empire. They assumed that, yes, there will be some kind of an autonomy or self-rule in historic Armenian territories, while other Armenians will continue living as subjects of the Ottoman Empire in the same way as Greeks were living in the Ottoman Empire after Greece had seceded yeah, and uh, established a nation-state of its own. So in that sense, uh, it was a much broader kind of an ideology. The, the problem for historians is that when the young Turks lost the war in 1918, before fleeing the Ottoman capital, they actually burnt all their papers. And because mm. it was a one-party state, uh, all the important decisions were taken at the party level, and government papers, which were not burnt, do not give us that kind of insight about the ideological motives. They give us a lot of orders and other things, and many of them are gradually becoming more accessible. So we now know, for example, when uh, uh, deportation orders were made, and etc., but these are more technical kind of orders. But the ideological kind of thing, we have to guess through memoirs, you know, conversations those leaders had with others, whether other Turkish people or foreign diplomats, etc., in order to construct the actual objectives of the perpetrators. Hearsay, basically. Mm -hmm. Well, a little more than that, uh, but di di diplomatic reports, intelligence reports by the French uh, spies sent. So th th there are this kind of uh, situation, and also memoirs uh, yeah. of people who tried to talk about how they looked at the world and what did they what did they see in the world and how did they want to change the world? Right. So those ideologies weren't necessarily spelled out very clearly in one document, but using a lot of different sources, we're able to piece together that story. Correct? Yes. And my, I personally think that uh, while all of them were empire savers, some were more ideological, looking for broader ideals rather than others. So uh, Turkish nationalism maintained the empire as closely as a new Turkish state as possible was the lowest common denominator 
among those who took actively part in this process. Others looked beyond the borders into some kind of a pan-Turkic empire, etc., but not necessarily all of the young Turk leaders were very much uh, attracted to those ideals or really considered them to be practical. But, uh, you know, as I said, we all have guess we, we all have to do guessing, even the experts on this, because we don't sure. have those documents. They will all have been burnt and they will never be recovered. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's that's the story that we see for a, a lot of uh, uh, these situations, actually. So it's it's not actually surprising that, you know, it's hard to to exactly pin this down. Um, Henry, you've got your hand raised there. Did you have something to say or? Yeah, so I guess j- just to unpack a little bit about what you were saying, and and um, so it sounds like there is you know conflicting. I don't want to say conflicting, but you know there is this massive ma- nationalization process that was going on within you know the Turkish government, and you know that even included when you say expansive ideology. Did the Ottomans really think that they were going to take over like you know those those, those Turco Altaic lands or 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 lands like Baku, which was like a major oil hub in the Russian Empire. Like, did those expansion expansionist um, views go that far? Uh, well, Baku, yes, definitely, because it was thought to be manageable. Uh, and actually, toward the end of the war, they captured Baku in September 1918. And one of the reasons they lost the war is because they took troops from the Palestine front to fight on uh, the direction of Azerbaijan, but then the real uh, strike at them was by the British army on the Palestine front, and this is where they actually fought the last battle, and then they had to go and seek an armistice, which is almost like an acceptance of defeat. Uh, As beyond that, uh, probably, and some of the Germans were actually encouraging them. Uh, in some of the lines in that agreement, uh, secret can be interpreted as German encouragement. And we know that the Germans also used to go and send uh, spies in those areas in order to create trouble for the Russian Empire behind the enemy lines. So probably at the widest imaginations, yes, there were, but probably they were a minority uh, among the people who actually took those decisions. Uh, for example, the attack on the Suez region, which they, try, which they tried twice, doesn't help at all with this dream, which means that at least those people who attacked Suez and wanted to get Egypt back, they were more like retrieving what the empire had lost rather than establishing a new, uh, what you call a Turanic or Altaic empire. But some of the young Turks leaders had those ideals. And the most important one among them was Enver Pasha, who actually in the end went up and fought in in Central Asia. And he was killed there in a battle uh, when local Muslim groups were resisting the Bolshevik uh, advance. And that was in the very early 1920s. So let me let me know if you think this is a fair comparison because this is how I look at the Armenian situation in the in the in the 19th 20th century very much kind of like the modern day Kurds where you have uh you know autonomous zones in, in different states um however you know there there's certainly many Kurds who you know who aspire to have their own Kurdish state um 
And, you know, I even draw another parallel. You know, there's they have massive problems with or the Turkish government has massive problems with them. So it's kind of, it, that's how I kind of look at them. And I, and I try to paint that lens just for, you know, people who haven't studied this era that much as, as a way to uh, view the Armenians at that time. You think that's a fair comparison to the modern day Kurds? Look, for somebody from detached from the region, I think that's a fair comparison to make. Of course, there will be differences and similarities. But when it comes to the Armenians, it's not only a question of comparison, because many of those territories were inhabited by Kurds. And much of the unhappiness uh, of the Armenians were that Armenians were more settled people, uh, and some of the Kurds were still nomads. And uh, oftentimes the Armenian villagers, even more uh, kind of people in leadership positions who were more educated, uh, used to ask the Ottoman government to rein in on Kurdish disorder or whatever. During the genocide, many Kurds benefited because they were given permission to loot and plunder and abduct and the other, etc. But what has happened since then with, without Armenians, now the, Turks, the Kurds have become the target in those regions of Turkish nationalistic oppression. That has created some kind of sympathy and also some kind of soul-searching. Uh, for example, many Kurds are ready to admit that what happened to the Armenians was genocide uh, in Turkey. Uh, but there is the other role, their own role in the genocide. Of course, ideologically, they had no role. The ideology which encouraged the population to become culprits, yeah, uh, accomplices, in a way, was different. But uh, by providing incentives to ordinary folks to enrich themselves, yeah, they actually pushed a lot of people to participate in actually helping to drive the Armenians out of that region. And among them were a lot of Kurds. Uh, so this is an issue which probably for scholars it's easy to interpret, but for the Kurdish nationalism trying to create a story of its own, and like all nationalisms trying to present the image of the good one surrounded by the bad people around them, yeah, it's a bit difficult to actually fit into it. Right, kind if of like the American. Yes. The American story isn't a story about you know how we took over the native population's land and expanded westward until we got to the ocean. Yeah. Right, that's not that's not our story. Our story is the nicer you know yeah. American dream. Right, so yeah, the and Kurds then, probably wouldn't want to talk about that. This is of course very <laughs> far fetched. If one right. day the Turkish modern state disintegrates. Uh, Kurds and Armenians aspire to some of the same territories. Because ultimately, <laughs> okay. in the end of 19th century, there were areas where there were mixed populations. Mm -hmm. Not only Armenians and Kurds, but also Assyrians used to live in the south of Lake Van region. And the Assyrians were also subjected to what is now being described as a parallel genocide. Uh, and also there were a lot of people who were refugees from the Caucasus who had moved into those areas when the Russians advanced southwards in the 19th century. Chechens and Circassians were there. And uh, the Chechens and Circassians also played a role in 
uh, actually killing and looting the Armenians uh, because they just saw the Armenians as extension of Russians, both of them being Christian. They were driven out by Christians, and these were the Christian people here, probably ready to ally themselves with Russia, so basically a legitimate target for some kind of revenge. Now, there is no Chechen or Circassian nationalism aspiring to establish a state on the territory of Turkey. So that kind of issue of how to look back uh, is different. But if we today take the Turkish parliament, for example, the HDP, Halkların Democratic Party, which is the basically pro-Kurdish party, uh, actually every year now, symbolically is introducing a motion to accept the Armenian genocide and all the other parties of course voted down and it never even comes to the floor to be decided but it's a very kind of a symbolic thing. Uh, there are There is at least a very active Armenian deputy in their own ranks who actually raises this issue every year etc. But as I said the number of the Kurds in Turkey is limited and uh, on their own they cannot make a change unless there is also a fundamental change in the way the Turkish majority sees itself or defines its own nationalism. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. That's fat. That's that's really interesting. So, you know, a way that I've 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 read about, you know, um, I'm reading some. We're doing a lot of research right now on on the Russian Revolution, and um, you know, I you know a topic I stumbled across was, you know, some of the arm, some of the the brutal, um, you know, uh, shakedowns or 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 uh, violent put downs of, of protest 
in the, even the Russian Empire in, in 1905. And it sounds like at that era, um, Armenians, kind of like the Jews of that era as well, were, were collectively condemned of, as, as radicals. As, uh, as people who would gravitate to radical politics. So there was like an extra layer of suspicion on them. Um, you know, how, how, how is that a fair statement? Is that true? Or, you know, is that yeah. kind of the general well, way that governments were looking at the Armenians? Russian ideology has evolved on this. Sure. In the, in the early 19th century, when they were moving southwards, they looked at the Georgians and the Armenians as Christians to be redeemed and assisted. And technically... Of course, Russian rule brought a certain lay of much better technical government than the previous Persian government did. And at the level of education, organization, uh, security of the public domain and all these kind of things, there was a huge advancement. And, uh, and, and, and a certain Armenian bourgeoisie emerged in the South Caucasus. And initially, they did not have any political aspirations within the Russian Empire. But many of them supported Armenian political aspirations in the Ottoman Empire. But all that changed uh, during the 1905 revolution and prior to that. Of course, the fundamental moment of change in Russian history is the assassination of Alexander II. Alexander III comes in, he's very great Russian chauvinist nationalistic, and he starts seeing the Armenian revolutionaries as danger, even if they are only... Uh, trying to assist Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it gradually uh, improves relations with the more conservative regime in the Ottoman Empire, etc. And then, in 1903, that's only a year and a half before the outbreak of the revolution, it confiscates Armenian church property. And what is significant, because that property includes a whole network of community schools where Armenian language was also taught. And there's a huge upsurge and opposition by the local Armenian population all around the South Caucasus against the Tsar. During the revolution of 1905, as the regime is shaken, uh, that decree was rescinded. But still... Up until 1912, the Armenians were seen as very dangerous and there was a lot of oppression. And even sometimes the young Turk government at its beginning helped the Armenian revolutionaries who were fleeing the Russian Empire into the Ottoman Empire. Oh boy. But, after, that really... but that's a very short, brief period. But after the Balkan Wars, everything changed again and go back to their earlier pattern. Uh, and Russians start again encouraging Armenians. Uh, and then the, the Ottomans become very suspicious of the Armenians again looking abroad for some kind of assistance. So during World War I, of course, many Armenians fought in the Russian army in the same way as many Armenians fought in the Ottoman army. Most of the Armenians in the Ottoman army were actually liquidated gradually, not all of them, but a large part of them. What do you mean by liquidated? Sorry, can Basically, we be clear about the, that? Their, their weapons were taken away from them, Okay. They were sent to work in what was called work battalions, and mm. few of them actually survived that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we have very few memoirs of people who served in the Ottoman army and endured until the end of the war. In the case of the Armenians in the Russian Empire, most of them were sent to fight Austria-Hungary and Germany on the Eastern European Front. 
but uh, when the Russian army was fighting the Ottoman Empire, uh, some five to eight thousand, we don't know, Armenian volunteers were actually initially gathered to fight alongside them. This is something that also the Ottoman Empire did, having volunteers fighting the Russians, etc. And this was a very imp opportunity that the Ottoman Empire used in order to blame the Armenians for treachery. Well, in previous Russian-Ottoman uh, wars starting in the 19th century, similar battalions had fought, and the Ottoman government had not seen in them any kind of an example, uh, token of ma ma mass treachery, etc. Now uh, time had changed. Uh, but also the Armenians were, just before the outbreak of the Russian Revolution, we're talking about, let's say, the late part of 1916, the Russian armies had actually advanced quite well into Ottoman territory. And many of the areas where the Armenians had lived before the deportation were now under Russian hands. Uh, Armenians were a bit unhappy that the Russian government was not allowing them to return the survivors to their own homes and towns and cities, etc. But in any case, this idea that the Ottoman rule was not going to come back was seen that it was going to be a positive step. But ultimately, the Russian Revolution weakened the Russian army, they had to retreat, etc. And the Ottomans got the opportunity, as I said, to reach up until Baku in the, in the September of 1918, but only a month and a half later, they had to actually accept defeat against the British. Uh, so this is basically uh, what happened. Uh, the Russian uh, involvement in the genocide is equivocal. In some areas where the Russians were able to conquer quickly, uh, some Armenians were saved, and they actually moved into Russian Armenia, Eastern Armenia. Today in Armenia, you have a lot of people who are from those regions, who have been living there for now over a century. They still keep their group identity, they mark events, etc., and even the Soviet government from the 1960s allowed them to do those things. Uh, in, in that sense, but at, at the same time, there was this idea that the Russians were ultimately not going to help the Armenians have any kind of autonomy or whatever had the war been concluded with, with, with Russian participation in the Allied victory. The fact that they moved out, of course, changed the whole balance uh, in, in the region. Mm -hmm. So... Perhaps we can. Uh, you're painting a really good picture of like the 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 premise before the the actual event, the genocide, right? And we were there's a lot of mm, arguments that are being made that that show the suspicion on the on the Turkish side of the Armenians as being treacherous, as an example, right? What actually causes the the event? to occur like how does how do they start deciding to kill a bunch of people <laughs> you know like where, where does that come from we don't know exactly when they made the decision mm -hmm. but we assume they did it sometime between january and march of 1915 and they start execution of it in april of 1950 uh, um, a bunch of the reportations t take place between may and september of uh, sorry 1915 Armenians marked the genocide every year on April the 24th because on that evening uh, in Istanbul more than 200 Armenian educated community leaders 
uh, were arrested and basically taken to central Anatolia and very few of them survived and returned. So the, the intellectual cream was decimated at the very beginning of this genocidal process. Uh, the Ottoman Empire initially, and this is another way we don't know exactly what happened. So there is no that kind of Gavrilo Princip event so that right, one person right. went and... Yeah. <laughs> uh, what we have is that in the first few months of the war, end of 1914, very early 1915, the Ottomans took the initiative on the Russian front in the Caucasus mm -hmm. and moved into areas in the Russian Empire, which are also populated by Armenians in a way, but they couldn't go far because winter came in and the uh, Ottoman army was not well prepared and thousands and thousands of people, uh, sorry, soldiers starved, uh, sorry, froze to death. That, that, that town, Sarikamish, at that time was in Russian territory. Today it's now in Turkey. So when Enver Pasha returned and had to justify himself, initially he praised the Armenians. He, he has even on record saying that at one moment an Armenian soldier, and he gives the name of the soldier, Hovanes, which is the Armenian word for John, yeah, uh, actually saved his life. But then a few weeks later he started blaming the Armenians for being the cause of the defeat because they were treacherous, etc. Some people say, and these are of course more Turkish historians who go against the government position, is that the reason was the attack that the Allies, mainly the British, tried on uh, Constantinople, Istanbul in the spring of 1915, the one that we call Gallipoli. Because uh, the, then the young Turk leadership thought that if they lose Istanbul, what will they do? Well, they will retreat. Will, where will they retreat? To Anatolia. And Anatolia will be the place where they will try to start resisting. And their backs will not be safe with lots of Armenians who have been unhappy with Ottoman rule for many, many decades. So this would probably be one important reason when they finally took the decision to get rid of that. There's an important passage in the memoirs of the British, uh, American ambassador America was a neutral country. It stayed. It is a master state in uh, Ottoman Empire even after America joined the war against Germany. So American diplomats played a very important role in recording what was happening on the ground. In his memoirs, for example, Talat Pasha was at that time Minister of the Interior. He's the masterhead, uh, so in, in, the, in the sense of uh, master, sorry, mastermind uh, of. Uh, the Armenian genocide. He tells the American ambassador that, I know what I'm, it's very Machiavellian, I know what I'm doing is bad, but ultimately my people will thank me later on for what I have done. And I've done more to solve the Armenian question in these three or four months rather than Abdul Hamid had done for 30 years or whatever. So this kind Yikes. of an attitude was that this is the opportunity, let's get rid of the Armenians and then there will be no Armenians, there will be no Armenian problem. And, and then they'll have that fallback area. Yeah, in, yeah. In, in and, uh, and in retrospect, they were able to do that. Uh, one of the poignant moments for many Armenians, including myself, uh, during the earthquake two weeks ago, mm. is that it happened in those areas where many, many, many Armenians used to live, mm. including uh, my grandparents. So the first city which President Erdogan visited 
after, uh, when he went to Everett Lake region was the town where actually my, not only my grandparents, but also my late uncle, the, the elder brother of my father, were actually born before mm. leaving uh, those areas, etc. So in that sense, uh, this was uh, basically, it is believed, one of the reasons that they wanted to do it. They just wanted to have a an area where they can go and, and resist and with their backs safe against any possible encroachment either by the Russians from the east and if the British had succeeded, captured uh, Constantinople, probably they would have also moved a little bit westwards as well towards the interior of Anatolia uh, in that sense. So that's another uh, educated guess that many specialists of this period believe it could have been one of the triggers which actually pushed them to start uh, implementing this plan in the spring of 1915. So are most, you know, in modern times, are most Armenians... Um, can they descent like can they trace back their their heritage back to the Armenian genocide as in like um you know are, are like American Armenians are they like were, were a lot of them the descendants of refugees of the genocide prior to the disintegration of the Soviet Union the vast majority of the Armenian diaspora not only in the Western world, but also even in the communist states of the Balkans, like Romania and Bulgaria, who had their roots back to the Ottoman territory. Uh, a lot of Armenians have moved out of the Soviet territory since 1991, and they have come into the uh, United States and other countries. But even if we go back to the population of the Soviet Republic of Armenia, an important chunk of it were refugees. Some were refugees from the Ottoman Empire prior to 1915. Many were refugees of 1915. Uh, other smaller groups left Turkey in the early 1920s, when basically it was evident that those areas will remain, those survivors. And also a large chunk of Armenians who had fled to other countries, around 100,000 of them, cl close to 100,000, actually moved to Soviet Armenia after the end of World War II, when the government encouraged immigration after the end of the war. So there was a time when something like 15% or more of the population of the capital city of Soviet Armenia, Yerevan, was of Western Armenian descent. And so you can see that uh, in, in, in that sense. Uh, but uh, prior to 1991, yes, most Armenians that you would come across outside the USSR, they would have been uh, very likely of uh, Ottoman Armenian descent. Oh, boy. Well, I mean, um, I guess, you know, another, this leads me to another dark question is, you know what? What is the estimate of people who were who, who were killed in the genocide? I will say probably a million is good, and we have also a lot of forcibly assimilated people uh, who initially were all considered to be killed, but in recent decades some of them are coming a little bit back. 
it's now becoming acceptable to say that my usually grandmother was an Armenian because many, many young women were actually forced into Muslim families. Yeah. Uh, so now the numbers are a problem because Armenians and the Ottoman government statistics do disagree how many Armenians lived in the Ottoman Empire before. And uh, in 1912-1913, when this issue of you know reforms was coming out, the Armenian Patriarchate in Constantinople made a census, a very detailed census. Every parish in the empire had to present a very detailed report of not only all its parishioners, but also Armenians of other rights and also all the other ethnic groups that were living in those regions. And uh, those, of course, are detailed and they are studied. And the, and the number comes that there were about 2.1 million Armenians, according to the Patriarchate, living in the Ottoman Empire, of which more than 1.5, 1.6 million lived in that Armenian homeland proper. But as I said, Armenians from other parts of the Ottoman Empire were also deported. So in a way, we may say that close to 2 million or people were deported. Uh, in the end, uh, sorry, in the end, those who were survived as Armenians were probably a few hundred thousand. So if you subtracted the numbers, it was 1.5 million. Uh, but that also will include the forcibly assimilated. So we don't know when, what is the total number of those killed. Uh, from a handbook of the Talat Pasha, which was uh, published a few years ago, his wife had given it to a Turkish historian who actually published it, he had estimated about 1 million people killed in his notebook. Now, the Ottoman Empire says no, 1.3 million Armenians only lived, and that's the census. But we know that censuses are also political, and the Ottoman government had every reason to show the number of Armenians as low. So we cannot say because it's official, it's uh, more accurate than, let's say, uh, what the Patriarchate has said. If you take the 1.3 million, the Ottoman government says, oh, it's only 300,000 people killed. Only. Uh, yeah, and, and I know one of the one of the Turkish historians who went said one day he was speaking in the in the town of Izmir. He said, "Okay, let's say it's only three hundred thousand. The main soccer stadium in Izmir holds fifty thousand people, which means that we are going to fill in the stadium to capacity six times and kill every single one of them. If that's the small number, yeah, uh, that's it. So technically, you have this kind of an issue." Uh, but we can say that the majority of the Armenians did not survive. Either they were killed, they died en route because of dehydration, diseases, etc., or were forcibly assimilated. Uh, usually adult males were not, but children and young women were very vulnerable. In, in, when, in that when, when, you say, when you say assimilated, do you mean like... You know, Turkish janissaries types, you know, no, no, no. taken against uh, their will. And, and Most of them were taken by Muslim families, Turkish, Kurdish, Arabs, etc., and were raised and uh, uh, married there. Well, in those kind of poor surroundings, I don't think the difference 
of the social status of a servant in the family and a daughter in the family in the, let's say, the desert-like conditions of northern Syria was huge difference in that sense. Uh, so we had that uh, in a way. And also there were some males, for example, uh, something which happened with a person I know. Uh, one of my classmates, and he's now a physician in, in, in Lebanon, uh, there were four uh, siblings, and their grandfather, we know, that was uh, taken by an Arab family and raised there. But then after the war, American missionaries had actually paid the family to free him uh, to come and live with the Armenians again. And of course, in time, he found his sister, etc. Uh, but because he has lived his childhood among Arabs, he always felt more comfortable speaking in Arabic rather than Armenian. He, of course, uh, understood Armenian well, could speak Armenian well, but once it, you get into it after the fifth or sixth sentence, you would prefer to continue with, with Arabic. In any case, uh, in our own school, there was also a guy who ended up being a very famous television anchor uh, in Lebanon, and uh, he one day invited his classmate, the sister of my classmate, yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, they took the father to the show. And this was in 2005, I remember the date for other reasons. And this guy, already in his early 90s or late 80s, you know, was telling about his own experiences. That's, that's, that's... Uh, it, it, it will get emotional. Yeah. A, a family in Syria look at this man and say, this man is looking just like our father. They call the TV station. And what does the TV station want? Okay, why not? We'll do a, we'll do a DNA test. And they took him. And yes, they were the, the, son and the son and the daughter of the lost brother who had already died. Yeah. And this is something... This happened with a man that I used to know a lot, you know, and I used to speak with him a lot, etc. Uh, when I was, well, not only a kid, but all, I was also an adolescent in, in that sense. So this, uh, a few years ago, a bunch of uh, Turkish authors whose grandmothers were all admitted to be Armenians wrote a collection of the book called Grandchildren, Torunlar. And and it's it's evident that in unlike this case, most of the cases are the grandma is Armenian rather than the grandpa being Armenian. In this case, the grandpa ends up in Syria actually, uh, and uh, ends up living among Ar Arab Syrians. And this was the story. So uh, there was quite a lot of this. And some people used to come back up until nineteen late nineteen twenties. The League of Nations used to help them. There are records of other things that they used to do this. Uh, others actually had second families. They found their first families. There are even people who actually come and spend time with their first bunch of children. And they said, oh, well, we want to go and live with, you know, go back with the other Turkish children that they have. So there are stories uh, like uh, this as well. Unfortunately, this human side 
cannot be talked very freely in Turkey because in order to talk about human side, you have to first agree that there was a huge kind of a crime occurring, which the Turkish elite is not ready to talk about yet. Uh, some people say we should talk about these Kurds, uh, sorry, these Turks who helped Armenians, and actually there's an organization, Raoul Wallenberg Foundation, where Armenians are involved. A few years ago, they made a list of these kind of righteous Turks, etc. But the problem always is with talking about Turkish people, and we have this, of course, in the same way as in, in slavery in America. Don't talk in the passive voice, saying that a lot of Armenians were saved by Turks. Yes, but saved from whom? You have to also say, say yeah. So, uh, so uh, uh, evidently this is there. I was reading uh, uh, an article that years later, one Turkish person comes to Lebanon and looks for somebody and then finds that that person is dead and uh, but his wife is still alive and he questions the wife and says did your uh, husband ever talk about uh, a green handkerchief and he says yes well this is it I don't know what it is it turns out it was some money he gave it to me and I said I'll keep it until you come back he never came back that person was going on a pilgrimage to Mecca mm-hmm and as a devout Muslim, basically he thought that he has to find this money, give it back to the person before he actually went on his pilgrimage in order to go there with a clear conscience. And actually he handed mm. the money and went on to Mecca. So uh, there are, of course, lots of human interests. In the case of the Ottoman Empire, because that racism of the Nazis is not there, uh, essentially these kind of human stories are there, but also there are stories of rape, manipulation, and all right. the others. I talked about some of the more uh, touching ones, uh, and uh, this is also the part of the story that we have to talk about, of course. Right, and and I think that's that's kind of the point. I think you've been very gracious when when discussing this, and, and you referred to, you know, the 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 affected peoples as as the deported. But you know, another way to to look at that i mean that those deportations were also known as death marches right yes. and 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 the the conditions were absolutely brutal and i think yes e- even those conditions are in dispute in 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 many ways or 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 downplayed by um you know certain folks in in the uh ter- turkish patriarchy there um what yes. well i remember years ago uh, we were at the conference on the armenian genocide mm-hmm. And one of them read a paper saying that, you know, women and the children were those who suffered most. They carried the brunt of all the torturous journeys. And one of the professors said, yes, unless if you don't consider getting killed as torture, you're right. Because, you know, uh, men were liable to be killed with, with, with bullets and other kind of lethal means at very early stages of deportations uh, in that sense. Uh, in the mentality of the perpetrators, uh, this medieval notions of uh, Muslim being more important than Christian, inequality in their own minds, and also male being more important than female, made the Christian woman assimilable. Mm. 
since there is no racism, if you have sex with a uh, Christian woman, she will not pollute your blood of your children. So essentially, uh, and here comes the issue of helping, manipulating, and the borderline, as you know, is very, very, very difficult to judge. Uh, people have been trying to do it, uh, but uh, uh, in a way, it's uh, for a podcast like this, I think we'll just raising the issue will be enough rather than going into the details of those kind of nuances of how people were treated. But yes, evidently, uh, there were s certain points where people were being were killed at point blank range uh, because they really wanted to uh, make it impossible for especially males to survive <coughs> a lot, and uh, that's why you have you had much more female survivors than men. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Survivors. Right. Who, who eventually might have been, you know, integrated or assimilated into other cultures. Yeah. So furthering the, the genocide from beyond just a, a physical genocide to also a cultural sure. one as well. Um, so this this occurred, the, the, the genocide, what, what uh, from April 24th is that first start date? And it ends, what, like 1923-ish well, or look, something like that? Well, uh, if we took the, this event, the mm -hmm. high point, right. it ended towards the end of, the December 1916. Okay, so after that, mm -hmm. after that, there were not massacres as they were at the beginning of the marches in mm -hmm. the spring and summer of 1915, and there were uh, targeted killings and massacres in the northern Syria, starting from the middle of 1916 to the end of 1916, and that's where the region of Derzor becomes the equivalent of the Auschwitz for the Armenians. Because this is where many of these massacres occurred towards in the second half of 1916. After that, uh, of course, people continued to, uh, to die of dehydration, continued to die of malnutrition, diseases, etc. But there were not many uh, massacres that occurred. Now, there were other wars between Turks and Armenians in Eastern Armenia. In 1918, 1920, uh, there were wars between the the Turks on the one side and the French soldiers and Armenians in Kilikia, the regions of the earthquake, in 1920-1921. There were Armenians who were killed during the conquest of Smyrna, Izmir, in 1922. So if you consider that as a part of a global struggle between Turks and Armenians, in that case, that's why some people put them at 1923, which is the, the Lausanne Treaty, which comes and brings the peace into the region. But in the narrow sense of the genocide, using the very narrow terms of meaning, I think it would be 1915-1916. It doesn't mean that other things were no problem, but essentially, you know, mm -hmm. they were war crimes and, and this kind of things, and not a kind of a targeted campaign by a government to kill part of its citizens because of right. their different ethnic identity. Fair. 
That's fair. So w- w- while all this oh, is go happening, ahead. go ahead, Henry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Danny. I was gonna. I'll, I can save this question. Sure. I, I was just gonna ask, like, while while all this is happening, like, what is what is the global response to this? Is is this just something that was totally unknown, you know, no. in in the global community, or and just ignored, or you know, was it similar to in World War II with you know the the extermination of the Jews and other uh, uh, populations in Germany where people knew about it but nothing everyone stayed quiet and didn't do anything about it what what, what was the global response to this look we have to look the global response into into three groups the enemies of the ottoman empire that is britain france and russia the -hmm. neutral powers the scandinavians and the americans yeah and also the friends of the ottoman empire most notably germany the first ones actually, some one month after the event, uh, came up with a declaration that is the British, the French, and the uh, Russian governments saying that what you're doing, we will hold you accountable for at the end of the war. By the end of the war, only the British tried to do that to some extent, and you know the Russians were out of the war, etc., and not much did actually happen. But it's a very interesting thing, as they were devising the statement, one country uh, suggested to call to call this crimes against Christianity. I don't remember now which country. The other one said, no, let's call it, these are crimes against humanity. As far as I know, this is the first time ever in international political discourse that this term came into it. And of course, later on, Raphael Lemkin took the Armenians as one of the examples to devise the concept of genocide, but that was some 30 years later after these events. So the Russians, to some extent, helped victims as much as they could, because many victims, as I said, ended up in the Russian part of the empire. A lot of people actually used to die after crossing the border, so they also should be considered to be victims. And they don't fall into that one million number that Talat Pasha calculated, for example. Uh, Now, the neutral powers are the most important source of information because they were on the ground. We had a large American consular network and also there were a lot of American and Scandinavian missionaries who actually were working in those areas and they provide us with ample evidence. Americans tried to distribute some money, missionaries, etc. So a lot of uh, humanitarian work was carried out. And Armenians also were also part of that network as well, working together with them to try to save lives as much as possible. More and more attention is being paid to this now uh, in a way that even in those difficult times, they're trying to lessen uh, the number of the victims as much as possible, etc. And what about the others? In Germany, it seems now that the all archival base is open. Uh, there were some people who justified what the Ottomans were doing uh, by taking this idea that Armenians were a threat to their war effort. Some even helped them by suggesting how to do things. We don't have that much evidence of them they themselves actually doing it, the German, uh, etc. There were others who said it was unnecessary and it should not be done. But when the issue came to Berlin, finally it was the Kaiser Wilhelm said, no, 
we should we cannot criticize an ally in the midst of a war and he cut its discussion in the German public. A very interesting figure here is the German ambassador Hans von Wangenheim. Uh, in the memoirs of the British American ambassador which were published in 1918 he is seen as a cold character justifying what the German government is doing, a villain. He's a villain in the memoirs. Now that the archives are open, we see him privately protesting, but actually keeping the official line in his meetings with the American ambassador. In the Armenian Genocide, uh, in the Armenian Genocide Museum in Yerevan, they have a hall just outside where they have brought the ashes as much as possible of some of these people, but these are mostly foreigners who raise their voices. These two ambassadors have their sections there, not far from one another, yes. And probably the American one would have never imagined that this would happen uh, in a way. So that's uh, also another. But ultimately, Kaiser Wilhelm did, uh, did, not, do, did not lift a finger to stop the German, uh, the, the Turks, and also it tried to give. And what happened is also after the war, some of the young Turks fled to Germany. And when it proved almost impossible to find them, an Armenian secret network was established and the Armenians went and shot two or three of these oh. huge leaders. Hmm. And the first one was Talat Pasha and he was assassinated in 1921. And the assassin was let free by the court. Really? Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the defense pleaded temporary insanity. Uh, and uh, the judges did not give a detailed explanation of why they considered him innocent and let him go. So basically, we assume that this was the issue. But we also know that by that time, of course, the Kaiser had, you know, uh, ab uh, abdicated. He had already fled to the Netherlands, etc. Mm -hmm. The new government wanted as little to be said about this as possible. I see. So they and just kind of it, swept it, it under the rug. That like, they let's they not think sent about it. signals mm -hmm. to the court that this finish this trial as quickly as possible. We don't want this issue. Did the Germans know come to be here? And right. at that time, the British, the German government did release some archival material, but now new editions of the same archival material have been published with all the uh, deleted lines, etc., and all those things which gave the idea that the Germans knew what was happening or whatever or closed an eye were in 1919 all uh, forcibly uh, deleted or kept classified if we put it in a way and of course we know it. So these were the, the different approaches. Um, the only way in which uh, some Armenians were saved was when the Russian armies came to those areas where some Armenians were resisting and a another very famous case happened close to the Mediterranean shore when Armenians went out to, the, to a mountain and uh, tried to stay there until they were noticed by a French warship 
which came in and uh, actually established a bridgehead, took them and transported them to Egypt, where they stayed in Egypt. Some, we're talking about a few thousand, you know, Armenians from a few villages, uh, in a way, uh, there. And this, of course, was made a very famous novel uh, in the 1930s by a Jewish-Austrian uh, author. Uh, and for years, uh, Hollywood has tried to make a film out of it, but the Turkish government has always tried to prevent it and has been successful in what you have a very low-budget uh, production of film and uh, every time you know from Clark Gable to Sil Sylvester Stallone were all interested in playing the, re the lead role in the film but no, uh, at no time did this project take off because essentially the Turkish governments of success from the 1930s up until the 2000s have fought tooth and nail about against this movie being made. I would love to see Sylvester Stallone as the main character. That'd be hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> well, Clark Gable was in his own time. Yeah, of yeah, course. Ninth, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I, I want to be respectful of your time. Perhaps we can ask you a few more questions uh, and, and then we can, you know, wrap this up. But, you know, I guess you've told us the story about how the conditions were to lead up to the events. You told us about the event itself and, you know, the, the, the numbers of people that were affected, you know, and, and how hard it is to pin that down. You also gave us kind of an insight as to, you know, what the global response is or was during the time, splitting that up into the three different camps, you know, the, the allies, the neutral parties and, and the, um, you know, uh, the, the enemies of the Ottoman Empire. So what was the outcome, I guess you can say, what, what, what happens in the aftermath uh, of, of this event? Um, at, like post this event, maybe we can talk a little bit about how the Turkish government, you know, denies the the genocide. Perhaps we can see uh, talk a little bit about what are the implications. What do we learn about this event and and its subsequent denial? Uh, you know, and how that might relate to you know uh, current events. What can we learn and glean from the, the, okay, the let's, aftermath? Let's look at the successive Turkish responses. Mm -hmm. When um, the young Turks were seeing that they're going to lose the war, uh, so in the early October, if I'm not mistaken, of 1918, they resigned and they fled and uh, the country. Most of mm -hmm. them went to Germany, and some of them ended up in Bolshevik Russia later on, because these were areas where the French and the British could not reach them. And, you know, they knew that they would be arrested and tried, because that was the promise made. There came in a new government. Actually, the Sultan even uh, blamed the young Turks for having done that, pardoned the Armenians. The Turkish government took its own measures to set up a court and to try these people. They even tried some people in absentia. Uh, those records have been published. Uh, some are important, but unfortunately what we don't have yet is the prosecutor's file. We have the indictment that that, that person made, but we unfortunately don't have the, the, the material that he collected. His name was Mazhar. Uh, and uh, however, many Turks did not like this. When the first of the perpetrators was condemned to death and actually hanged, there was a lot of people who thought it was very unfair. And when Mustafa Kemal started opposing the Sultan, 
many of the perpetrators fled to Mustafa Kemal's side in order not to be arrested. And so we ended up, although Mustafa Kemal himself did not have any direct role in any of the episodes of the Armenian Genocide, most of the people around here, around him, were genocidaires. And, uh, and and this is something that modern-day Turkish historians who criticize Kemalism have been stressing, and European historians of, of the modern Ottoman Empire, like Erich Zürcher, more, more, uh, more recently David Bayer and others, are also have taken this argument as well. Uh, so ultimately, uh, the founding fathers of the Turkish Republic, many of them have direct participation in the genocide at the second and the third tiers and below. Uh, because the top ones were too famous you know, to be able to resume their careers and Kemal saw them as rivals and he made sure that those who were not killed by the Armenians, he killed them themselves under other pretexts later on. But starting from that moment on, successive Turkish governments have denied the genocide and it has continued up until now. Uh, in the time of Erdogan, the first few years when he was more liberal, he allowed some open discussion, but in the last six, seven or eight years, as he has moved towards more authoritarianism, he hasn't rolled everything back, but some of it has been rolled back. For example, it's still allowed in Turkey now to publish a book and use the word genocide and have it sold. Of course, very few of the books talk about it, but you can find them in bookstores. Of course, in addition to much more which continue harping on the government tune. But, for example, when some human rights groups in Turkey used to do commemorations in public, and they did these uh, up until 19, 2015, for a number of years, etc., now they are, they are now forced to go back and do it in halls and not in public spaces again. So, in the last seven or eight years, there has been a retreat from the relative progress that was there between 2000 and 2014, 2015. But uh, it remains an important task of the Turkish Foreign Office to deny the genocide. Every, it is the duty of every diplomat to deny the genocide as part of his or her diplomatic responsibilities. And every time that any country says something, etc., the Turkish foreign ministry or whatever will issue a statement or whatever, etc. There was a time when they used to recall ambassadors uh, and of course those ambassadors after a few months they would go back. Uh, the last one which uh, passed the resolution was Mexico, actually almost the time of the earthquake coincidentally and even in the midst of the earthquake the Turkish foreign ministry condemned the Mexican move uh, <laughs> in a way. You know, it's only two Bitter years. Bitter things that, to think about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's very important for them to have this image, especially under Erdogan, that the Ottoman Empire was an empire of peace because Erdogan wants to create that image to secure a leadership position for Turkey on the former Ottoman territories. Not necessarily annex them, but to see as an important major regional power and that it will have, have a role in seeking solutions to all of its 
problems from Libya to Syria to Iraq and whatever, etc. So this kind of an image is there. They had a serious problem with Lebanon a few years back when the Lebanese president recalled the famine in Lebanon and said that the Lebanese were under Ottoman oppression for centuries and for a few weeks there were uh, memos and statements between the Lebanese and uh, Ottoman foreign ministries, you know, about no, the Ottoman Empire period was a period of peace, etc. And so this kind of thing uh, is, is there. This is basically the Turkish position. There was briefly this government which thought that if they put the blame on the young Turks, in the same way as German governments after 1945, yeah, put the blame on the Nazis and said, the Nazis are to blame, we're different from the Nazis, yeah, and we're continuing with our own lives. Uh, uh, they were ready to do it. The European response was not as much as they wanted. And so that also helped... Uh, the Mustafa Kemal to actually uh, get a lot of supporters from the genocidaires on his own side. His record is mixed. He was a very opportunistic on this issue. At times he has said one thing, at another time he said another thing, etc. Uh, in a way, and depending wh what do you want to say, you can quote Kemal this way or that way. Uh, but uh, that, that's only important in Turkey because what Kemal said or did is not that much important outside the Turkish political discourse uh, among Turkish you know, publicists uh, in, uh, in general. An important difference between Germany and Turkey is that after the end of World War II, Germany lost its sovereignty. For four years, there was nothing called Germany until in 1949, the two Germanys were established, one by the Soviets and the other by the three other allies. Uh, in Turkey, you did not have that. Always a Turkish state remained, although Istanbul was under military occupation, uh, etc. So that allowed a lot of uh, opportunities for the Turks to hide material. I'm not talking, even if the government did not order that, a lot of the people were involved in that hit what would have compromised them. Sure. So that, uh, that was an important issue. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if they had learned from the Armenian case, but the American occupation forces, General Eisenhower and the others, I've read, had made special effort to show the Germans the remnants of the concentration camps Correct. and the other things so that they would not mm -hmm. say, we did not know. Yeah, right. nothing of that ever happened in Turkey. Mm -hmm. Most of the Turks do not know what happened because in Turkish textbooks, it's mostly the justification of what they deported. And then they don't talk what deportation means. I see. Yeah. So they don't have that human stories of what it means, etc. These things are not told. They're just saying, we deported them because they were untrustworthy and we took good care of them, etc., etc., and that's it. So, uh, in a way, the discourse stops there. And, you know, there is no description of what happens. In, usually in Western textbooks, which are not about the genocide, but about the Ottoman Empire in general, it's the same position. The only one is David Bayer's book, which I read very recently, which spends a few pages uh, telling the story of one lady's memoirs to give you an example of what deportation means for a young mother 
you know, what kind of problems did she go through until to find herself somewhere in France, I think, or whatever, where he, where she writes his, her own memoirs of what happened very early on in the late 1910s or early 1920s. So that's mm-hmm. a very important issue that the human tragic side is hid from the Turkish public by the official discourse. And most ordinary Turks, <coughs> unless they will make an effort by themselves, will be never told about the details of what it really meant to be deported. It's very fascinating. I, I never actually thought of it that way. Um, yeah. While you were talking about this, I was immediately thinking about the Germans, you know, and you made that comparison without me even raising it, you know, and how, how much it feels like the Turkish have gone in the complete opposite direction of the Germans. And and, and I thank you for, for clarifying that there were very different contexts to which, you know, both of these two countries uh, have arrived at the at the positions that they're at now, but I still come keep coming back to the fact that this is an event that have it happened over a hundred years ago. At this point, it, it, the current Turkish government has the luxury of a lot of time and generations to say, "Hey, that was then. That was in the past. We didn't do that. We're the good guys. Those are different people. We acknowledge the fact that they're that you know our ancestors did something terrible." And and I I don't know. I, I guess. You kind of painted that picture for me. You're, you're telling me that, uh, you know, Erdogan and, and the current government, you know, is, is more interested in, in creating a, a mythos, a, a national story around, you know, um, Turkey being or Turkey, as they're calling themselves now, uh, being um, the, the big brother of, of Central Asia. Right. The, 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 the main regional hegemon um, and, and and a leading Islamic nation. Right. Uh, rivaling Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Even I hadn't the Arab even world. thought of that yes. either. Yeah. 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 So there's so there's even more of that, right? So so I guess what you're saying is in to to accept uh, the the fact that they've done something wrong here puts them back, you know, or takes them down a peg on their pedestal uh, that they that they're erecting for themselves uh, uh, currently. It's fascinating. Well, I guess just to, not to open up a whole can of worms, but <laughs> it's interesting to look at <clears throat> the states that acknowledge, you know, past atrocities and then states that, you know, will will deny them. Like another example um, is Japan, like, you know, modern day Japan denies a lot of the atrocities that took place during World War Two in China and things like that. And, um, you know, they'll they'll. You know, it's something that they don't really like to talk about. And I wonder if there is the same logic they're going because Japan was, of course, conquered and not to jump subjects right here, but Japan was, of course, conquered. But it didn't suffer the same level of occupation that Germany did post-World War II. Um, so it's interesting to, to, for, for, it's, it's interesting to hear that laid out. It, it, it's, it certainly seems that the Turkish leaders today feel that admitting to this atrocity would delegitimize to state to some degree. And I guess they feel it's in their best interest to deny it because, um, you know, it's essentially the same state as it was. And am I correct? Is that correct? The state, the, the Turkish state today is the same state that existed. Well, in- it, it depends on how you look at it, you know, at at certain moments they say we're the same as that, uh, 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 and in other moments they haven't. Of course, uh, Erdogan, unlike his predecessor, is paying more attention to the Ottoman past 
that Atatürk and his immediate successors did. Uh, but also the Islamists could have said because they are not a continuation of the Young Turk Party, which did mm -hmm. the genocide, the Kemalists were. So, but the, the, he didn't make use of that uh, in, in one case. Uh, now, f over the years, uh, some information has come out, mostly through memoirs, or mostly through admissions in private by Turkish diplomats to their Western counterparts who have written in their own memoirs, yeah, that ultimately inside the Turkish foreign ministry, there is this idea that how are we to handle this? Mm. But all the time they said that probably it's more cost-effective to fight its acceptance rather than once you accept, open up the whole door of reparations, compensation, mm. and, and these and that. Uh, so that's a very important thing. It was said that when President Turgut Ozal was in charge, and he was there, of course, in the 1980s, he actually asked uh his administration to prepare two reports. What is the cost if we accept it now, that is mid-1880s, and what will be the cost if we accept it in 30 years' time? Uh, cost-benefit Which is very, very kind now. of interesting. Uh, yeah. And uh, as I said, what I've seen recent, that was already seven or eight years ago, before uh, Atatürk's turn to the more authoritarianism. Usually public opinion polls, when people were asked in Turkey whether you accept it's a genocide or not, I've seen two or three polls, which see that we are consistent, around 11% said yes. Now, for Armenians, that's a huge number because 11% of pop Turkey's population is probably the same size as all the Armenians in the world. Uh, and we, while we think that most of these 11% are Kurds, but there are also other groups in society, and some of them were quite open in this, and some of them were even per, uh, prosecuted by the state. Now, prosecutions have stopped, because they thought that it will be a bad kind of an idea to go on this issue. But as I said, the uh, foreign ministry continues. When President Biden repeated the statement again last April, and I'm sure he will do it again this April. Uh, you know, the Turkish government was the second year they said that the American president is actually basing his claims on false historical information. And the State Department responded that, no, we have consulted with historians, etc., and we think that what we're saying is something verified by historians. In a way, my, I smiled at it. I said, they take you 40 years to <laughs> check the facts, uh, you know, because essentially this has become an issue in American politics since the 19, late 70s, early 80s, and we had to wait until 2021 uh, for that come to into fruition. Right. So one of the greatest successes of Turkey has been to politicize this issue, to make sure other people that, you know, we will have an attitude against you and will try to make things difficult for you if you do this. And some of the Western countries used it as a way to bully Turkey as well. Mm. 
uh, in a way, if you don't do this, we recognize the genocide. <laughs> uh, and um, but in the end, once you recognize it, you cannot use that bully again because essentially nothing will change, right? Uh, except on the moral sense. Uh, but yet again, for the Turks, this is a very, very. Uh, it seems to be a very important issue. It has become a matter of national honor. The difference, Henry, between Japan and Turkey is this. In Japan, it's not state's official policy to deny. There are political parties in Japan which deny, and whenever they are more powerful, it becomes politically more important. But no Japanese diplomat, as far as I know, is under obligation to stand up and correct, okay, correct, quote, unquote, correct, yeah? If somebody talks about the Nanjing massacre, and if he doesn't do so, they will not consider him to be negligent. In Turkey, you will pay for it. If I am in a hole talking about the genocide, and as a Turkish diplomat who doesn't rise up and said what he is saying is something which is baseless, wrong, or whatever, etc., etc. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. I've been at a conference when I was uh, we're talking, and saw one Turkish diplomat went up and said, and then the chairman said, okay, you've done your duty as a diplomat. You know, thank you very much. Let us continue with our own conference. So in a way, uh, that was it. Because he was a very young man. And then I said, yeah, I know this, this man has been sent here to say this. Why should I be rude to him? I said, okay, thank you. You did your job. Thank you very much. So we're continuing. So th- that's, that's, th- that's the issue. Yes, for most Turks, it has become now a very, very sensitive. Any Turkish leader will now change course? He has to be a very brave person indeed. So I He's a traitor. Wrong. Initially, that will be the easiest thing to say by any opposition figure. And believe me, any opposition party will find this as a golden opportunity to attack whoever that leader is. Yeah. So it will not be a quick kind of process, you know, in a way, suddenly changing position. It's, it's, it's interesting. I just pulled up a map real quick to see what countries have, have formally recognized the Armenian genocide in one way or another. And um, obviously Turkey and, and Azerbaijan are not are no surprise. But then I see Pakistan is one of the countries that, that takes Turkey's claim as well. Uh, I'm sure we can jump through a huge rabbit hole on, you know, why the, the why behind uh, some countries' recognition and uh, the why of some countries not recognizing it. But, you know, some of them, you know, just looking at this map, some of them do jump out to me. Where like, are we at, Henry? You know, the majority of the Muslim world doesn't, but no. you see Iraq Except and Except for Lebanon see... and Syria, nobody in the yeah. Arab world. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and Syria only very recently after the 
uh, civil war. Yeah, because uh, they have an Armenian population there, right? And, uh, well, they had that before, but uh, you know, Erdogan but, was not trying to bring down uh, Bashar al-Assad. That was the reason. Yeah. Uh, in Egypt, you don't have official recognition, but you have the media talking about it. Uh, and that's also because the Egyptians are not very happy with the Turkish expansionistic foreign policy in the Eastern Mediterranean. But most of the countries are from Europe and the Americas, North and South. And to some extent, it's also because of the culture, yeah? It's the more culture of human rights, recognizing history, etc., which in the African continent, in the Asian continent, you don't have as much as you find in what we will call as the Western civilization. Uh, and so most of the Armenian work had also been towards those areas uh, in that sense. Uh, so I think for the Armenians, there's a lot of work to do in places like China, India, and Africa. Yeah, it's, it's also interesting to see in, uh, some of the countries that have NATO aspirations, uh, such as Sweden and, 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 uh, and Finland. Uh, Sweden, which looks like it does recognize it, and then Finland, which does it looks like they have no have no official statement. But um, I guess I'm sure that that whole thing just plays into the the, the overall relationship between Turkey and and uh, other states because um, you know, like it or not, Turkey, you know, just strategically located, they they, they do have influence in this world and. Um, it's uh, it's just interesting to see how they it's how the countries react with it's them. It's Turkey's influence which keeps Bulgaria out. It's it's Turkey's influence which keeps Georgia out. It's it's Turkey's influence which keeps Iran out, and definitely Israel out. In Israel, there is also the other issue that you know we don't want other genocides except the Holocaust, but that's getting less and less. <laughs> a different issue. Yeah. That's getting that was an issue twenty years ago, more than it is now. Uh, but still, why should we upset Turkey? And now why we should upset Azerbaijan? Because Israeli-Azerbaijan relations are very good uh, right. compared to Israeli-Turkish relations. And, and this also makes a very different paradox. A lot of Jewish scholars, including a number of Israeli scholars, yeah, played very important role in advancing the knowledge of the Armenian genocide in what we describe the Western world. Uh, so a, a lot of them have done tremendous job uh, on this issue. But when it comes to the government, it's something else. Hmm. You raised the uh, the, well, the issue of uh, Azerbaijan. Last, last little bit here, and then maybe we can end it. Um, Nagorno-Karabakh heated up again. Uh, you know, not too long ago. Uh, what's your What's your take on the current um, uh, uh, situation between Azerbaijan and, and Armenia in the Nagorno-Karabakh region, and how might that relate to the ongoing discussion that we've had today on on the genocide? Uh, let's not go into all the problem. Not that I don't want, because we, we're almost we have talked uh, quite a lot. Yeah, uh, well, on, well, this on, is a whole new can of worms, Danny. Yeah, I and, think and, maybe and, we and can all, put a pen uh, in it. But, but I'll come to the genocide thing towards as uh, in my, after my just, just short statement. Um, today, the South Caucasus is after Ukraine, a powder keg, uh, and uh, there is more European and American involvement in the region, uh, and Armenians think that that will help to prevent Azerbaijan from launching another war, 
because it seems that uh, Aliyev is sure that it has the upper hand at the moment and can score another victory and maybe this time grab territory from Armenia. He's talking about these things. The Russians are unhappy uh, because they want uh, they have now rivals. Another rooster has come into the barnyard, which is called Europe. But at the same time, uh, Russia, at least the way the Armenians see it, is not being able to fulfill its treaty obligations towards Armenia. And so Armenians basically have said, okay, well, we have to look for someplace else. So that's the situation. Mm. Now, when it comes to Azerbaijan, in Soviet times, the Soviet attitude towards the Armenian genocide was to some extent similar to the Soviet attitude towards the Holocaust, but for different reasons. In the sense that there was never denial, and denial was suppressed, but also there was no encouragement to talk much about it. And uh, so in, in Azerbaijan you had uh, a number of uh, statements published in Soviet times in, in Azerbaijani publications which refer to the genocide. Not much, not books, yeah, but in encyclopedias and places like that. Ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, things have changed. Russia has formally recognized the genocide. At the 100th anniversary, Putin was one of the few foreign dignitaries who came in. The president of France was there as well. Uh, and so that's not an issue uh, in, in Russia. In Azerbaijan, it has now become much more a denialist force than Turkey. While in Turkey, you have a subaltern group which talks about the genocide. In Azerbaijan, Basically, the genocide is denied outright, and many of the Western scholars, at least two or three of them that I know, who have written books questioning the genocidal nature of the Armenian events, basically have been decorated by the Azerbaijani government mm. in recent years. Azerbaijanis look at the Armenian genocide in the same way as the Arabs look at the Holocaust. Although they are not themselves responsible, they fear that if you talk too much about it, it creates sympathy about the Armenians. Mm -hmm. In the same way, the Arabs fear that it will create sympathy about the Jews and to some extent exonerate what they say or what uh, Israel does or what they fear mm. Israel because of. So I think that's a very kind of thing. The Azerbaijanis have tried to create an issue that they were themselves subjected to genocide by Armenians. Now they have a genocide day or whatever, etc. But of course, in this case, it's a mixture of pogroms and uh, which happened in the Russian Empire and also some kind of population transfers, which they claim it was genocide, which ultimately you can question it, but they basically try to come put them all together and say it was a genocidal thing. But at, at the moment, it hasn't had much. Although, as part of their public diplomacy, uh, they're also pushing hard so that, uh, that they will be able to gain support on these issues as well mm. uh, uh, in, uh, in, in, that, uh, in that way. So, as long as relations between Armenia and Azerbaijan remain at this low point that they are now, uh, in Azerbaijan, Turkey will find a very important ally in genocide denial uh, as well. Fascinating. Thanks for that. <laughs>
Well, we got to talk to you again about this. This, this is uh, this was um, incredibly interesting. Obviously, it's an inc- it's 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 an emotional and and very sad history to, to talk about. But um, I, I thought this was really extremely insightful. So we both want to thank you. This this uh, was excellent, and I'm sure our our audience is going to gain a lot out of this. Um, is there anything that you want to talk about books or articles or anything that you're working on that you'd like to mention before we conclude the show? Uh, really, I, as I said, I, I'm not researching this particular issue that we talked about. One of the projects that I am working on is how the Soviet government looked at the issue of genocide. Hmm. Uh, I haven't published anything yet, but I've given a number of lectures and hopefully it will one day end up as a small book. You know, I'm, I'm seeing it more like a 80 to 100 pages kind of a book rather than an article. Uh, but there are a lot of interesting books that you can read about the Armenian genocide. Uh, and for as a matter of size, that is, let's say, uh, about 250, 260 words, I think Donald Bloxham's book and uh, Ronald Grigor Suni's books are probably the best in as much as the size is uh, taken into consideration. There is Raymond Kevorkian's The Armenian Genocide, but that's a huge book of 700 pages. And <laughs> yeah. I really don't expect, you know, people to read it in that sense. So if you want to either get the general view of it, it's uh, Donald Bloxham. The, the title is exactly missing me. I, don't, I think it's called the, the Great Game of Genocide. I'm not sure about, I don't remember quite correctly, but the author is mm-hmm. Donald Bloxham. And Ronald Suni says, you live live in the desert and no place else. These are two good middle-sized books, you know, where you can read and get a, a general bird's eye view of what was uh, happening. Uh, in the case of Ottoman history, Donald Byers chapter, The Armenian Genocide and the First World War, in his book about the Ottomans, is one of the latest one, and that's about a 10 to 15 pages kind of a short overview as well, which can be very uh, useful. Uh, well, yeah. Oh, sorry, and, I was going to say, we... Of, we a, a number of our, books our... on genocide in which you will find chapters on the Armenian Genocide. So those are also very useful. Books about history of genocide or sociology of genocide. Usually, most of them have a chapter on the Armenian genocide. Yeah, I was going to say that our, our we have a lot of um, like grad students who listen to this show, so they're always asking for like different books or if we're if we quote something or we talk about something. Mm-hmm. They're 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 always asking where we're getting that information. Um, so these were great. These are great recommendations, and um, we we appreciate that. Um, so Danny, anything else you want to conclude with? Nope. All right. So, uh, thanks again, Ara. Uh, really appreciate you joining us today and, uh, let's do it again sometimes. And also everyone's still listening to the show. Make sure that you fill out the survey in the show notes, <laughs> the, the survey monkey survey. That is the number one way that you can support our show right now is filling out the survey. And it is a reminder again, because it is, uh, imperative that all you guys do it. You can win $500 uh, in Amazon dollars. So please do that. And we will see you next week. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Wishing you all the best. All right. Take care, everyone. Peace.
Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.